All right, and we are rolling once again. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass, the Alabama wild man. <laughs> All right, so what our audience doesn't know is, is we started recording this episode earlier and we had a really bad glitch and it dropped everything and we all got a good laugh out of that. We got a good laugh before we restarted. So I had to, had to throw it in there again. The Alabama wild man, Kevin Pendergrass. Yes, yes, he is. Kevin, how's life? It's good, man, and and I'll, I'll say it. So Bethany always called me the Alabama Hammer back in the day when I was debating on like the Alabama Hammer because you have to have a like a like a code name or not a code name. It's like a I don't know what it. That's like professional wrestling. You have to have a yeah, name. Yeah, you know. And no, actually, she never called me that. I wanted her to though. I thought that would be cool. It would have been really cool. But Maybe that'll catch on. To say, Kevin yeah, Pendergrass, the Alabama Hammer. Or I, I like the Alabama wild man better, just Alabama for whatever reason. Hammer, you need to grow a beard before that works, like <laughs> like me and uh, Dr. Baggett have. And that's who's joining us tonight, is a good friend of yours. And I'm excited to record this episode because you had, you've you been talking him up for a while. You've been telling me, man, we got to have him on. It'll be a great discussion. He, he is awesome, man. He is, he is seriously the man. Yes. So I'm excited to have you, Dr. Baggett. We're thrilled to have you. Uh, thank you for taking time out of your schedule to join us on our little podcast here. We're, we're thrilled to have you on as a guest, brother. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. You bet. So a little bit about you. Um, you are an academic internal medicine physician, and you were born and raised in Alabama. You graduated from Auburn with your undergrad degree in biomedical sciences. And then does that count? Your, does that count if it's from Auburn? equal accounts? Absolutely. It does. <laughs> <laughs> and then the University of Alabama um, at the Birmingham School of Medicine is where you received your, your doctorate in medicine, correct? That is correct. All right. And after that, Dr. Baggett was in the United States Air Force as an active duty physician in San Antonio at the Wilford Hall Medical Center and the Brook Army Medical Center. And you did that during your residency training. And then after that, you went back to, or you went to Mississippi rather right. at a Keesler Air Force base to serve as an academic internist for the Air Force for four years. So you've been doing this for a while. I teach, man. That's my, it's the best job in the world is teaching others. Awesome. And I'm going to, I'm going to tell you too, we're talking about biases or biases tonight. Mm -hmm. And, uh, there is no bias when I say that, that, that Alan is by far the, uh, the best doctor I've ever met in my life. No joke, man. Well, really, the medical doctor, just phenomenal. Listen, when That's Kevin awesome. says stuff like that, I have to pay him money. So, Kevin, you got to kind of... <laughs> Keep that down some. That'd be cool. I appreciate. Yeah, that's that. Well, that's how we keep this podcast afloat, right? That, that's go. how we. Yeah, that's how we finance this. But in addition to your um, medical degree, your medical training, and your career in teaching medicine, and you also serve as a deacon at your congregation where where you guys attend too. Is that's, that's is right. that right? Yeah, cool. uh, I've been doing that for the last year, year and a half or so. Um, I've been involved with our church's first medical mission to Baja, Mexico, which is just a ton of fun. Um, and we also do a, a durable medical equipment supply. I have a, a, a nice room at the church there where we store some used equipment and then pass out and, and use that in the community here. So it's been a lot of fun. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking time to be on this uh, podcast with us and to record this episode. I, I know how busy the teaching life can be, especially this time of year when finals are coming up. Or have you guys already had your finals? So uh, the residents actually don't take standardized tests like that. I mean, they have boards at the end of okay, the training, okay. but it's just three years of hard work. Yeah. 
it's, I'd imagine it is not easy at all. Well, thank you very, very much for being on the podcast. And tonight we're going to be talking about biases. Mm -hmm. And from what Kevin was telling me, you gave a talk on biases and, and subconscious or unconscious bias at a, a lecture that you did not too long ago. Yeah, that's true. So I guess to kind of open up the discussion with you a bit, bias, uh, it, it's a really important discussion in medicine, right? So when I walk into a patient's room and, and begin my interaction and I'm taking history, uh, doing a physical exam and thinking through the labs and all the bits and pieces of a particular patient, I need to be very careful with my own bias. In other words, what I walk in the room with, because if somebody looks unusual, they appear uncomfortable to me or they're outside of perhaps a norm, it can limit my ability to get adequate information and to really perform my job. And so it's a big part of medicine. It's been that way for the last 15 or 20 years. You know, medicine, we always want to get better at doing what we do. And so finding the limitations there and how we process information is, is super important. So um, I had a nonprofit organization in town reach out several months back and, and they wanted to talk about bias in the nonprofit setting, which is totally unique to me. But uh, I got to jump in on it. And then from there, you know, non uh, talking about bias in the church setting, I think is is the next interesting discussion that I hope to explore with you guys tonight. Yeah, well, we, Lee and I talk a lot on this program about the importance of presuppositions and checking those at the door as much as possible, but at the same time realizing that we still all bring our bias to the table. And that's just something that is unavoidable, but being able to recognize that, do our best to acknowledge it, and then work around it. And so when we were talking about this, you had just brought up how you were giving this presentation, and I was like, and this, this, this would be perfect. This would be absolutely perfect because even though you're coming at it from, from a medical perspective, I think the right. same principles obviously still go hand in hand with any aspect of your life, especially religion, where I think having a bias in our Bible study is, is something that everyone, everyone has to fight against. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and bias is everywhere, right? We're, we're human beings. We, we process the world and the information and, and things that we see around us through a, a lens. We talk about in Sunday school, the Christian lens or putting on our first century hat. Well, that's that's trying to apply a bias uh, of something that we may or may not know all that well. And so it's a really interesting discussion. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan. I was kind of thinking through some of Jesus's early interactions today with his disciples and just different people. And I think there's some bias context there that maybe we'll get into a little bit later on. Well, whenever we consider biases, one of the things that Kevin and I have discussed on a fairly regular basis on this podcast is the idea of confirmation bias. And I know we're going to get to that. And we're going to discuss that at some point. Mm -hmm. But in the notes that you sent over, there are some other biases that you list there that are really, really interesting. Yeah. And they're, they're biases that I really didn't have an awareness of. And in some of the, the uh, statements that you make to describe those and elucidate those, it, it's like, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. That's, that's really cool. And one of those is the affinity bias. And so how would that work in medicine? And then how does that translate over into the spiritual realm or the realm of faith? Yeah. Well, before we get into affinity, let, let's talk a little bit about just biases in general. Okay. So um, the buzzword or the cool thing out in the community right now or in the academic community is the concept of unconscious bias. So the flip side of that coin is conscious bias. So I think that's probably the best place to start. Um, I bet between the two of you, the conscious bias that we could talk about very easily would be if you like Coca-Cola or Pepsi, right? 
Do you have a preference between those two? Yeah, well, Coca-Cola is obviously better. Yeah. Okay, but, but why? <laughs> why do you? Why is your bias that direction? Well, it just just is, man. It's the way it is. It's, it's truth. <laughs> right. So, so <laughs> it's a weird oh, thought, right? You never really processed. I mean, certainly if you're sitting down at a restaurant and they bring you, let's say we only have Pepsi, that makes a lot of people sad, and especially my part of the, the country here. But that's a that's a conscious bias. Like you have a justification, you have some sort of reasoning in the back of your head about why you feel that way. It can be completely arbitrary. It can be completely benign, but you have opinions on things and that makes you lean one way or the other. Like the toilet paper, should it go top or bottom? That one, most people don't have a real good justification for, but um, (laughs) it absolutely is a bias. There's there's no doubt that toilet paper roll bias. Maybe we should add that to the list. Yes, we'll put that on the list immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the flip side of the coin, so that a conscious bias is one that you're aware of. The unconscious bias, well, what is that? And again, when you're talking to this in, in certain settings, people will say, if I'm unconscious of it, then how can I be biased? Um, and so that's what I'm hoping to kind of dig into uh, a bit today. So unconscious biases in general are things that are very emotionally based. Um, they tend to come out of a place of or show up in a place where we're stressed or we're uncomfortable, or we're having to make a quick decision, and, and, and it's just not our, our baseline logic. Um, <clears throat> there's a book I, I referenced in this talk. It's called Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow by Daniel Kahneman, and um, it was written almost a couple decades ago now, um, sort of the start of this discussion on things. And when we're thinking fast and thinking emotionally, we tend to base everything off of these unconscious biases. Right. And so the example I'll give to you, um, let's say you're driving down the road. Right. And a car swerves over into your lane and comes head on at you. Well, you're almost instantaneously the fear and the anxiety of I'm about to die on this road goes through your mind. But it is instantaneously fast. I mean, it's just so quick and you react. Right. You make a decision to move. You're not actually sitting there going, oh, well, the speed of that car is sufficient enough to crush my bumper (laughs) and to sling me through the windshield. I must act on this now. You're not thinking logically. You're thinking emotionally. And, you know, that's a trait, God-given trait to protect ourselves in some ways. Um, But so shifting that gear, the affinity bias is it can be an unconscious thing. And I think it's apparent for all of us in, in reality. It is a bias where we want to be surrounded by people who think like us, um, perhaps look like us, that talk like us, um, that interact and, and enjoy the same jokes that we do. Um, we tend to, to find, have an affinity for those that are similar. And again, in a spiritual sense, right, that has some, that has some challenges. That, that places a lot of challenge in front of us, specifically in, in evangelization or evangelizing to others. And I think a lot of Jesus's ministry, like we're talking about the people that Jesus interacted with, affinity bias was absolutely a part of that um, equation. The disciples were, were questioning Jesus about healing a leper. Why are you talking to this guy, right? <laughs> he, is, he is unclean, yet Jesus walks up and has an, a close interaction with him. Um, the, the Samaritan woman at the well, sort of the same story. Jews don't interact with Samaritans. Why are we even here? Um, the context. And uh, Jesus pushes those boundaries a bit. And I think it pushes us. Thoughts well, on that? 
Well, whenever you consider conscious and unconscious bias, I kind of want to circle back around to that because those conscious biases, like you said, we have an awareness of them, but in addressing and overcoming a bias, it seems like it would be really, really challenging to overcome some of the unconscious biases that we possess, especially if they are maybe not quite as rooted in, in an emotional survival situation, like, you know, steering away from a car, having to choose, do I hit this car? Do I go off into the ditch? You know, um, a conscious or a, a bias an unconscious bias like that affinity bias and that being encoded within us to just want to be around people like us, the flip side of that and what that looks like and where that can really get in the way of being the people that God has called us to be is whenever we, man, I'm doing a really bad job of trying to, to this explain is what I'm trying no. to get at. It really is. It's kind of hard to think through, but this idea of, of it's almost as if you're going to segregate yourself away from other people who are not like you. Right. And we do that anyway. I mean, the kind of people that I like being around aren't necessarily people that look like me, sound like me, talk like me or anything like that. I've really grown, I guess, in my affinity for being around people that challenge me and that right. push me. And sometimes that can be uncomfortable. And I think part of this has to do with doing jujitsu for a long time. I've gotten more comfortable with being uncomfortable and it's easier to recognize that that's where a lot of growth can happen. But it almost seems like that that affinity bias is one of those things that gets in the way of our growth and our personal development, not only in a social aspect, but also in a, in the aspect of our faith as well. Absolutely. Um, We want to, we're, we want to be comfortable. I I think that's true of all humans, right? We, We don't like to be put in a place of discomfort um, if we had our way, we would choose the comfortable path, the comfortable cushion, the air conditioned church over the non air conditioned church, you name it. Um, but I, I honestly believe God calls us out of that and calls us to, into the uncomfortable situations in the, in the uncomfortable places. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about self-awareness with, with this topic. Cause really that's what this all is about is, is trying to bring more self-awareness to, to our blind spots. And, the way that you described it is unconscious bias. You know, you, you brought up, well, how do I, if, if I'm, if I'm not, if, if I don't realize it, then how can I, how can I be biased? And it's kind of like ignorance in a way um, with, with just any knowledge at all is that I don't know what I don't know, but I, I do know that I don't know a lot of things. And so it's, it's kind of the, kind of the same thing where I may not right now be aware of all the unconscious bias I have, otherwise wouldn't be unconscious, but I should be aware of the fact that it does exist. Is that, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And that's really, I think the purpose of the discussion tonight is just to open up folks' mind a bit about the, the underpinnings of our subconscious, the things that drive us each and every day. Um, When you get into that situation, you're going to, a confrontational moment at work or in, in the church, or um, you can feel your heart rate going up a little bit because you're uncomfortable or you're upset or you're angry or whatever. Just understand that, hey, man, there's there's some things processing in the background here that may push you to say or think one way that is almost out of your control. But if you know that these biases exist and they can you can pull them to the forefront a little bit, it will give you an opportunity to, to slow your roll slow your thought to think a little bit and honestly i think have a better conversation 
in, in medicine, right? We get a better, better history. I can't tell you how many times I've walked into the room of a patient and it's been a very uncomfortable um, setting, but I got, I still got to be a doc. I still got to, you know, get the information and, and move forward. Well, and, and so, I, and I want to interject something here too, because, you know, when I bragged, when I bragged on, on Alan earlier, it wasn't, it wasn't to be funny. I, I really mean that in that, um, you know, I've seen Alan in practice. He's, he has dealt a lot with, with my family and they now consider you part of, of our family because you've worked so much with our family in the medical field and taking care of them, especially my, my mom and is, is still a cancer patient. And when she went into the ER not too long ago, um, you know, I just remember all the tests that you had, had the, you know, had ran on her and the attention to detail and, you know, I was, I was just kind of feeling like, okay, well, Alan's doing this cause I'm friends with him and he's kind of going out of his way. And you're like, no, this is just, this is what I do for, for everybody. You know, I, I try to, I try to I give try, my, I try, yeah. I, I try to give my best uh, to everybody uh, equally. And, you know, it's so easy. I think, especially I can imagine in the medical field and we're, we'll apply this more spiritually later, but especially in the medical field, it can be easy because you see so much of the same thing day in and day out that, there's probably all sorts of assumptions and, and uh, unconscious biases that you have that when someone comes in and they've, they're okay, well, they, they have this wrong with them or this happened to them, all sorts of thoughts probably automatically just start going off in your head and oh, you sure. start making these conclusions. And so I'm curious, how do you personally fight against that in the medical field? What, what, what do you do? Yeah. You know, when you, when, cause, cause I'm, I'm, and I said this before, I mean, it's, I'm sure it's so easy for uh, a doctor who sees so much every day to just start trying to um, just kind of, uh, I won't say coast, but just start kind of autopiloting when they start seeing Check the same out. things over. Yeah. And so um, I don't think you do that because I've seen you in action, but I know that that would be difficult. So how are some ways that you fight against that? Yeah. So um, there are absolutely patient populations that are frustrating. Um and again, I'm going to try to tie this in spiritually as we, we go along too. There are people that you're going to talk to Jesus about that are going to frustrate you um, in that process. Yeah. And, and right. I mean, that's just, that's sort of part of the deal. Um, and it, it, it comes down to communication, what they're trying to convince you of and, and the, their story. And the thing that seems, seems to, I guess, frustrate me the most is recurrent um, ignorance or, or, um, you, you know, the guy or the, the young lady or whomever it is that has been admitted multiple times over and over and over again for, for drug use complications. Like, well, man, we, goodness, we talked about this last time you were here. Why haven't you solved this super simple problem? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I say that with a smile for our listeners uh, at home, yeah. right? Tongue so in I, cheek. Yeah. <laughs> tongue in cheek. Uh, drug, drug abuse is not a super simple thing for somebody that's in the, in the midst of it. It is incredibly difficult. And so the scientist of me understands that, right? I understand that it's, though I've never walked in those shoes, I very much understand from the data how hard that is and how hard and how likely it is to have recurrence and, and to fall through. And so, you know, when I'm practicing medicine in, in that particular patient population, what I find seems to help the most is continuous empathy or, or to continuously be compassionate, check myself like, yeah, this is frustrating. I wish they would just solve the problem. But man, I, okay, let's talk about it again. How, how can we how can we make this better when you go home? Um, 
What can we, what support system do you have in place? Asking those additional questions that perhaps some people don't want to do, like don't want to spend the time there. I guess I'm, I'm willing to spend a little bit more time with those individuals, even though it's frustrating. I think I, I accept my frustration and I accept that it's there and it may be there, but because I know it's there, I can process it. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. And you do such a great job at that. Honest to goodness. I mean, you know, my grandmother recently passed away and, and she just, she really thought you walked on water and, uh, <laughs> I, I do not, I do not <laughs> but, uh, you know, she, uh, you know, we, and my mom, of course, and, and, and we just talk about you often because of the, because of the care, the intentional care that, that you take to, to look deeper into the situation and not just, not just do it as a job, but really to to try to challenge the status quo. And and I feel like in Christianity, it's very easy when we have read the same Bible passages over and over. And, and this is kind of where I was going in the parallel I wanted to make with this is in the medical field, just as you're a doctor and you see the same thing over and over, it can be easy for you to quit challenging some of your assumptions. It's the same. It's the same way in Bible reading, I think, is when we read the Bible or we approach the Bible with a certain paradigm and we've read something over and over and over again, it's hard for us to see anything new and it's hard for us to question. It's hard for us to turn it up on its head because we're so used to reading it one certain way that we begin to study the Bible and look at the Bible and apply the Bible in almost an autopilot type of way. And instead of really engaging in the text as you engage with your patients, it's easy just to kind of write it off as, okay, this is just another day at the office. This is just another Bible reading. And there's, it, it loses its value. And in your case, if, if you don't do a good job, lives are on the line. And in Christianity, uh, you know, our, our spiritual life, for lack right. of better words, is on Absolutely. the line. And so there's, you know, I, there, it's, it's interesting how different this is, but also how similar it is in the same way. Well, and even in that, it almost seems as if in in thinking about this in both patient care terms, but also in spiritual terms, there's almost kind of a social aspect to it in that there's a measure of social conditioning that goes into programming that affinity bias. You know, I, I was thinking whenever you were talking about the Samaritan woman at the well, you know, that story is such a powerful story in a first century context because the Jews and Samaritans hated each other with so much vitriol and so much passion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's one, you know, extra biblical tradition that says at one point somewhere before the first century that the Jews got together at, at the second temple and in the course of three days declared all the curses in the, in the old law and in the old Testament scriptures upon the Samaritans because they hated them so much. Right. You know, they really hated them. And you know, the, the reaction of the disciples to going to Samaria and dealing with the Samaritans, it, they didn't like that at all. And it's because they were culturally conditioned and socially conditioned to hate the Samaritans. No one is born hating anybody. You have to be taught hate. And it's the same way whenever we consider the scriptures. No one is really taught to take a certain viewpoint, or rather no one just as a default takes a certain def- certain position whenever they consider the scriptures. By default, it's it's a blank slate. No one's a blank slate whenever you study the Bible because we have our Sunday school teachers that influence us. We have our parents that influence us. We have our preachers that influence us, our grandparents, our aunts, our uncles, our cousins, our friends, our neighbors. We have all of this that influences as well as the culture at large. So 
we're going to have a particular affinity to certain readings and doctrines, and we're going to be standoffish towards others. And that's baked into all of our experiences. And it's going to be different for different people. Absolutely. And so with, you know, we've, we've been talking a little bit about the, the, uh, of affinity bias. And so there's another bias. I know you want to discuss the anchoring bias. And so ex- explain a little bit of what, what the anchoring bias is. So I need to say up front, like, I think every internal medicine physician on earth is guilty of this at some point in some time. And, uh, uh Dr. Grant here, I'm sure in chiropractics also, uh, may commit to this one occasionally. Um, and that is the, the, thing that you think is going on must be going on. Yep. Uh, oh, for sure. <laughs> right. And so somebody comes in with chest pain, let's say on, uh, in the emergency room. And I think it's the heart. Well, it's gotta be the heart, right? Well, there's other things, <laughs> there's other things in the chest that can hurt. And there can be a lot of other things that can kill you in the chest. That's not your heart. And so in medicine, one of the things that, especially internal medicine, but really all forms, there's a thing called the differential diagnosis just big words. If you ever seen the, the show House MD, they really enjoyed writing their differential diagnosis on the board of incredibly rare and scary things. It was always lupus, though, man. It was it's always, always lupus. lupus. <laughs> um, it's almost never lupus. That's that's the truth. Um, it, but it should be on the list occasionally, right? So we, we write down the list of things that this should be like. This is the most likely, and then the second most likely, and we go down the list of things. And we create that list solely for the purpose of avoiding an anchoring bias. Um, It's really a common process that I I see with the interns and and the the new residents that I have on service. They come in with medical school knowledge, but they don't have the bedside clinical experience of how to get a history and kind of look at this this patient uniquely and, and go through that thought process. So they will often anchor on something that they are very comfortable with, but something that's outside of their medical knowledge base or their clinical experience, they'll kind of leave off of the differential. And so one of my big job, my, my main job really is to help those residents expand their thought process. I, I think this has huge implications in the church um, and in Christianity. There are certain things, I, and to be honest with you, there are certain things that I think we need to anchor on. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us to anchor on our faith in Christ, right? He is the steadfast anchor of all things. But outside of that, we tend to also anchor on some doctrinal things and yes. really have a very firm stance. And that firm stance, maybe there's some other things that could be on our differential. Does, does that sit well with you? Oh, yeah, that makes no, that makes Lee. I think you were going to say something. No, that makes that perfect makes sense. sense. And bringing it into differential diagnosis. And I think it's because that anchoring bias can be so strong. I mean, the the DDX class that we took whenever I was in school, I absolutely hated that class. But a part of that was because of our instructor, and we won't get into that here. But he wasn't he wasn't as cool as you are, and I'm sure I would have learned more if you would have been our teacher. That would have been amazing. But Thank you. Thank you. It, it it wasn't it wasn't a good experience. But that differential diagnosis, it's incredibly important. I had a patient who came in; he had just classic sciatica presentation you know, just it's super typical low back pain sciatica. And I'm like, well, Hey, this is what we need to do. Let's go to work. Sciatica clears up, but low back pain's persistent, hip pain's Mm -hmm. persistent. And I'm like, this is weird. This isn't, Mm -hmm. this isn't right. Anyway, we send them out long story short, the dude had metastatic prostate cancer. There you go. Yeah. Get the x-ray, send them off to an oncologist. He's fine now, but you know, if I'd have been just anchored to that idea, well, it must be this, it must, we just need to keep, you know, cranking on that sacrum or whatever else. 
you know, he, he could have died or it, it, it wouldn't have been a good thing. Right. But in, in a spiritual context, it's, it's interesting how that anchoring bias, and you even have this in the, in the notes that you sent us. And I think it's a perfect example. The idea that the Messiah that the Jews had in mind was going to be this revolutionary that would come in and free Israel from Roman subjugation. Israel would reclaim their land and they would be reestablished as the dominant superpower in their region. But that's not what Jesus came to do. And the disciples had anchored on to that idea so strongly that even after Jesus' resurrection and before his ascension back into heaven, they said, okay, so now are you going to restore the land to Israel? Now is it Israel's time? They were so married to that idea that they they still couldn't see the forest for the trees in that moment. And I, I think that's that's an absolutely brilliant point. And I had never heard of that of that turned the anchoring bias. But whenever you said that we tend to do that with certain doctrines within the church, every group does that. Every oh, denomination does that. And I like, I really like the wording that you use there when you're talking about your patient, right? You said something doesn't feel right. Like th this sounds weird. It's an emotional discomfort. You are recognizing that something was out of line of normal. And so it got your wheels spinning a bit. And I think if we could teach, I mean, if we could share that with our brethren, our brothers and sisters, like when something just doesn't feel right, maybe, maybe we should think on it a little bit more as, as opposed to saying, well, what the preacher just said there must be perfect because it came from the pulpit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, that that's something that I'm going to, Lee and I have talked about discussing in a future episode about how not all emotions are bad and that God has given us emotion for a reason. And when you study Jesus, and one of the one of the characteristics that stand out in the gospel accounts is how often he did something out of compassion. And the Greek word for compassion uh, literally means something that is is done from the emotion, and where Jesus is moved by compassion, or Jesus does something because of compassion. And there's a lot of times when we may be reading a scripture or we may be studying a particular belief that we hold and comparing it to the scripture and we assume it's correct, but it just, something isn't right. It doesn't seem to add up, but instead of allowing ourselves to explore faith and pursue grace, mm. um, you end up just having someone who uh, just kind of blindly accepts what they've always been taught because it is more comfortable. It's it's and and look, this is hard. It's hard to have our beliefs challenged, especially when when we're talking about this idea of of having an a, a bi like an anchoring bias. I mean, when when you have something that is your identity and sp spiritually speaking, that can be your identity. When you have been conditioned to believe something, I like to call it doctrinal conditioning. And when you have been taught to believe something and you believe it for with all your heart and you've believed it for so long and now some somebody is questioning that sometimes it can actually feel like a personal attack and i think that's why the scribes and pharisees at least the elite scribes and pharisees who were opposed to jesus why they oftentimes were so threatened by what jesus was saying that they wanted to kill him i mean prior to jesus actually being crucified they were constantly figuring out well how can we kill him we would think that's not really a normal reaction, right? Like, okay, somebody makes me mad. Now I'm automatically going to think, how can I kill this person? But as, as an elitist Jew at that point, you believe the Messiah has to fit a certain mold. And that is not up for debate. That's, that, is, that is the way it is, period. And so if Jesus really is the Messiah, 
then he has to fit this mold. If he doesn't fit the mold, he can't be the Messiah, which means he's a false prophet, which means he deserves the death penalty. So you see just how one assumption leads to another assumption leads to another assumption and why what you're saying for people to listen to is so important because this is foundational stuff right here. And, And we can be missing a lot of the Bible and the way we should be understanding and applying it because we're not willing to let go. And sometimes we have to let go of, of that anchor. We have to let go of that identity in order to learn, in order to, to allow ourselves to grow and be challenged, which is difficult, but I believe it's a necessary part of transformation. Yeah, absolutely. Those are some deep words. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, whenever you consider that this is the case and you begin to self-examine and self-evaluate and you start looking at these perspectives that you hold on to and these convictions that you have and these ideologies that you have been married to for for so long and you begin to reevaluate that, it's just like Kevin said, it's it's a very scary process. But through that process, it's there, there's really two tracks that one can take. You can either begin to reevaluate things in a more honest and open way, and you may find yourself um, veering away from some of those previous convictions, and you may find yourself more reassured about those, about the truthfulness and the goodness of those positions. It, it can go either way if someone is is honest and forthright with themselves, but so often the other path, and this is the path that I took for a long time, it's you know, I'm, I'm not now studying to determine, well, who was this Jesus character? Was he really the Messiah? Because the Messiah is supposed to be this mighty warrior that comes down from on high that restores Israel to, to their predominant state on the world stage. Or was there something more to it than that? Am I going to be like those, you know, itinerant Jews in Thessalonica that, that, you know, caused a riot? Or am I going to be more like the Bereans? And if I engage in the bias that Kevin and I have talked about a lot on this podcast Mm -hmm. before, am I going to be honest and open with myself and with the text and try to understand the context and gain a better understanding of the authorial intent, what the author intended to say, how the first century readers would have received it, or am I just seeking to reaffirm and reconfirm my own biases and prejudices on what passage X, Y, or Z is discussing. Am I really engaging with that anchoring bias and making sure that's not a bias or am I engaging in confirmation bias where I'm just trying to reconfirm what I already believe? What am I doing? And I think if you, I think it's easy. I think it's possible. Well, maybe not easy in all cases, but I think it's definitely possible for someone to step back and really be honest with themselves to see where their heart is and to see where their mind is. If I can do it, and I was as stubborn as anybody you'll ever meet, if I can do it, just about anybody can do it if they really try. Yeah, I mean, if, if Lee and I can change, goodness, like we've been given hope to legalists ever since 2020. So um, we, uh, <laughs> you know, because we, we were, we definitely had all of these biases uh, at play, I think. Um, everything you're discussing so far, I'm like, yep. Yep. Guilty of that. Guilty of that. Guilty of that. I do have a question for you. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on this, because as we're discussing this, I've had three conversations today with with three different individuals who are in transformation themselves, coming out of of, uh, a legalistic background and system, and they're, they're in transition. And as I listened to some of their stories today, I noticed how much manipulation that they were involved in um, and, and how to this day uh, and currently how there are certain people trying to manipulate them 
Um, and it seems like they're they're almost doing it, trying to play off of this this uh, anchoring bias. And so I was because because what happens is they already know that exists, right? And so spiritually speaking, they kind of rely on that. They they try to bring the person back to that and say, well, you know, well, you know, this is the truth. You know, this right. is what we've always done. I, I was just curious: is there some? Is it easy sometimes to be able? not only to fall for this yourself, but to be able to kind of manip- manipulate someone else when you know what their anchoring bias or biases it are, is. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I should rewind and say up front, there are over 150 documented, described by unconscious biases. And we're going to discuss every single one of them every tonight. Every one of them tonight. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's not do that. But uh, <laughs> to be honest with you, I'm not an expert on all of them at all. I, I know a handful because they're useful in, in medicine and, and church. But um, I think, yes. So can those things be manipulative? It, it is a, the anchoring bias is a point of solidarity in our mind, right? This is, this is a point where we have been steadfast and comfortable before. And so when you're pulled out of a place of comfort into something that's uncomfortable, your, your, your mind wants to go back to that in some form or fashion. And so it's easy for someone who's still standing on that solid rock, as it were, to try to, to tug you back. It, it's an easy direction to go. But again, I'm going to go to Jesus and, and looking example over, over example. He pushed, up, pushed his disciples and his followers well out into the uncomfortable area. And continued to do so. Even when they started to get comfortable, he pushed further. And he told them a little bit more. I mean, Jesus didn't talk about his death on the cross for for the early part of his ministry at all. It just never really came up. It was much, much later. He started out with the right things, made them slightly uncomfortable in Samaria, (laughs) and then then moved forward. It's just interesting, again, how people are on different paths there. There is um, a couple other biases that we could talk about that I think are apparent in the, the church um, and, and other all sorts of different um, denominations of faith. Um, a knowledge, there's a knowledge bias um, and a little bit of an ageism bias too. The knowledge bias is one that again we're all um, privy to. Uh, you know, I look at both of you guys and I think, man, their biblical knowledge is just stellar. I mean, I know that it's better than mine. So I'm going to view, you know. Kevin and Lee, I'm going to view their biblical knowledge as being superior to mine. So if they say something, therefore it must be true. Or the the vice versa is also true of that. If you have a significant biblical knowledge and you come up to someone who doesn't have that knowledge base, you can view them down or look down upon them. Like, well, you just don't know enough. And so oftentimes in that, in there, if there's a power level or power struggle between those two things, it's easy from someone from a higher level of biblical knowledge in big air quotes there um, to tug and, and to show, I'm, you know, I've, I've gotten this figured out. My knowledge base is so much stronger than yours. Clearly, you need to be more in the, under my knowledge bubble. And again, that's, there's no disrespect in, in, in intended in that. It's just the tug of information and the tug of time and experience. Ageism also plays a role. And um, again, not to, to get too far in the weeds here, but we look to our elders and to our seniors for a reason, because they have life seasoning and they've been through these some of these challenges and problems before. But sometimes some of us can look to them and say, oh, you guys are just so set in your ways. You, you haven't changed or haven't thought about this in forever. And then the vice versa, the flip side, they could look towards the young folk, the young crowd and say, well, you guys are just too liberal and you don't have the knowledge base and experience, right? 
So there's always a perspective wherever you are in life that puts you in a position to compare yourself to someone else and, and tug. I, I thought about the, uh, going back to the affinity, um, uh, bias. And when you were talking, cause I also think that when we really like someone, we're more prone to listen to what they have to say mm, and that's another agree, bias and, and even agree uh, with what they have to say it, even before they say it because we like them. And, you know, it's called you, the beauty or the beauty or halo bias. So if somebody is attractive to you or you, you view them as being a noteworthy person. You'll tend to accept their, their information. And what, and what's, what would the opposite of that be? Because today someone was sharing with me how they were, um, like talking about me and someone said, well, you can't listen to anything Kevin has to say because he's a false teacher. What would that be? Uh, you know, oh, that's not know. a bias. That's, that's just the truth. Yeah. That's, that's, actual, that's yeah. sound, sound <laughs> advice. Maybe. I don't know. Good advice. Uh, but, but you know, the, because I know yeah. growing up uh, in the churches of Christ uh, more in, in the church of Christ as we try to, to talk about is a very, that's a very large spectrum because that can mean a lot of things to different right. people, but the brand in which Lee and I grew up in, you know, it was like Rubel Shelley, for example, we, I, I was literally taught to hate Rubel Shelley, um, not in those terms, but anything Rubel Shelley ever said, you couldn't listen to because it was Rubel Shelley. And there was, there was that bias against him that while some people spoke, you were supposed to agree with everything they said because they were just a wonderful, godly person other people were presented in a light that we disagree with them so much. They're just such a, a, a quote unquote horrible person because they teach things that we think are false. You shouldn't listen to anything they have to say. So I'm assuming that that too would be uh, kind of more of a, the, the negative of that, the opposite of that, right. of where you're, you're not willing to listen to, to somebody simply because you don't like them or there may be other things that you don't agree with them on. And so you just automatically assume that everything they, they say should be discredited. It sounds a lot like poisoning the well that may not be exactly what that is. It, Alan, what, the, what are your the, thoughts? Yeah. So the ugly duckling effect, um, again, these are all just academic names or way, ways to describe things, but the ugly duckling is one that no one wants to play with or look at or have any interaction with. But the reality is, is there's some goodness behind the ugly duckling, right? Mm -hmm. There's some, there's some information there that that's challenging and uh, pushes us, but we don't accept it up front. I'm interested. So there, and I think you guys have talked about this a bit before. Um, there is a, a sort of an underlying philosophy within the church. And that is to, place a bubble around us, around its members and, and congregants, and to try to keep out information that goes against the grain, right? To protect ourselves from all sorts of errant thought. And I think there's some good to that, right? We want to separate ourselves from sin. But the question that I, I pose to that is, can information truly, can information turn someone's heart away from God? I, I've said it before uh, to Kevin uh, in discussions about his past and, and the dramatic change in thought that Kevin went through. And I've asked him the questions like, how did you, how did you mentally overcome that um, dramatic sw or swift change from one direction to another? And Kevin's response to that was out of honesty and, you know, a, a heart change, but there's a lot of people that, that get that set of information, um, change their mind and their belief system totally shifts and it's destructive for their faith. 
part of me wants to say, well, maybe the faith is weak to begin with in that scenario. Maybe they needed some more challenges. Maybe they needed some more information. Maybe they needed to think a little bit outside of the box to develop that faith and to push them a little bit further. Yeah, that's in, that's interesting because um, actually, I literally today I was I was talking to like I said I've had, I've had more conversations today with like long conversations with some good folks and a couple of mine never even met before and uh, some phone conversations that were really beneficial. And we were talking about this same thing that I, I was I had a lot of challenges prior to changing. So I, I had already and, and same thing with Lee. I mean Lee Lee was an atheist for a while. And so we had already kind of been challenged. That wasn't a new thing. It was new on what we were being challenged on. And it was definitely more, for me, it was certainly uh, more challenging than anything ever before because it hit right to my identity. Everything else I had been challenged on before, they were kind of like sub-issues. They were issues that I held dear, but not they, they really didn't define me. Now I was actually changing my identity. And, and it was, it was tough. I mean, it, it was very difficult. Uh, it took me a while to, to finally kind of accept that that's what was happening. And I was just simply trying to be intellectually honest with the information I had received. But I think far too many people, they're not taught faith. They're not taught how to allow themselves to be challenged. So the first time they're genuinely challenged they they no longer feel certainty because we all know certainty is a feeling. It's not a reality. We've all been certain before, only to find mm. out we were we were wrong. Mm -hmm. And so, if if you've been certain before and you realize that you were wrong, then you know how flimsy certainty is, right? But if you have always believed in your own certainty, and then you are faced with an experience, you're faced with a reality, whatever it may be, that demonstrably proves you wrong then all of a sudden it's easy to say, well, man, I don't have faith anymore because faith was always equated with that certainty. And instead of equating certainty with faith, I think they're two completely different concepts. I think faith is, is way different than certainty, especially as it's taught in church settings where we quote unquote know the truth, because if we already know the truth, why are we teaching each other if we already know everything? And if, right. if we're already saved, then let's not confuse ourselves more. So, it's it's this idea that faith is is you know it's certainty and this goes this really kind of goes to we could go all we could tug on this thread all night long but the idea that certainty and salvation certainty is is essential for salvation and if certainty is essential for salvation and I no longer have certainty or feel certainty I must no longer have salvation therefore I must no longer be a Christian therefore I'm just going to get into atheism because now I can't know anything anymore. And all of that is a false premise. I mean, all of that is built upon a false premise, and that is faith is the same thing as certainty. It's not. Um, you know, we can say we're certain about something, but reality oftentimes proves us wrong, and humility demands that we admit that. But anyway, the point I was making with all of that is just how the, the change when you lose your identity, if you've never been challenged before, I can see why people would throw away their faith altogether. Because I have friends. I have friends who are atheists now. Um, they've gone through a similar experience that I went through. Uh, but instead of allowing that to grow their faith and get closer to God, they threw everything out. And the reason is because they had a, a misunderstanding of what that faith is. And, and going back to that anchoring bias, that anchoring bias for them was certainty. And when that was uprooted, they no longer felt like they could have faith anymore. And so... 
I, I think that these things, you know, we're, we're speaking in concepts here, but this stuff is vital, man. I think this is so good. This is such an interesting discussion. I'm really enjoying this. And there's one, I want to, unless there's anything else, I want to move on to another bias that I think we're all guilty of and something that, especially within the realm of Christendom, we need to discuss, and that's confirmation bias. Absolutely. The only thing I would sum up your statement there, and, and just to reiterate, faith is an uncertainty. It's by definition that. And if we put it into any other box, then there's the opportunity for destruction. Yeah. And, and as we're teaching others, as we're communicating, as we're evangelizing, we need to be aware of our anchoring bias. We need to be aware of our affinity bias and, and all those things that are going on in our background. Because if we teach the, that those biases, we can teach them. They can be handed off. If that's how our church is set up, uh, that's the, the environment that we have created. It's a setup for destruction. We need to have a church environment where we can ask challenging questions and have thought, deep thought on some really difficult things where people are struggling. If you have that, then you have the conversation. And you'll see the growth of just in your church, just like the disciples group. Well, yeah, and and those um, those questions and those challenges will not scare you because you'll see that that's actually part of faith. It's not in opposition to faith, but when you've been taught that certainty is what you're desiring and what you're trying to go after in your Christianity, then a challenge to that certainty will look like it's in opposition that, 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 that someone is attacking you instead of you just trying to grow your faith. The more, the more that I'm challenged, the stronger my faith gets because I'm not, I'm not interested in certainty. I've let that go a long time ago. Um, I'm I'm, something robust. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm smart enough to know that, that I'm a really dumb person. And so there's no way if, if my salvation is based upon my knowledge, I'm screwed from the get go. Right. So I've, I have had to learn to just, to just, I'm smart enough to know I can't do it. And I just have to trust in, in Jesus. And that's, that's where my faith comes from. So, so let's, let's, this will, this will, this will tie into that discussion about the confirmation bias, because what you're talking about with certainty, man, that's the biggest challenge I had in this transition was overcoming that certainty and knowing where I landed on that spectrum. And that was the biggest, I think, problem that many of the brethren that I was really close to within the one cup movement had was that in discussing the things that we discussed in the early stages of this podcast and the early material that we were putting out there, I was demonstrating a lack of certainty in those rote doctrinal positions that we had taken and that I had promoted for a long time. And by demonstrating that lack of certainty, I struggle with that. I mean, Kevin, you and I had conversations where I, you know, even a year ago, a long time before we actually, Kim and I made the decision to leave that particular fellowship, you know, I was struggling with that idea. And I was thinking, man, you know, if I, if I no longer believe this and this and this, and I no longer share this set of convictions, am I even still a part of the community? It's, it's like Theseus' ship. You know, if you replace all the boards, is it still the same ship? If, if my convictions have shifted on this, where do I belong? Do I need to go here? Do I need to go there? Well, what do I do? And it's because I was anchored to those doctrinal positions and the exercise that was being presented to bring me back to the to the faithful fold and i say that with air quotes was an exercise in confirmation bias i need to reconfirm that which i already believed or that which i was letting go of it was an exercise in reconfirming those things so 
and, and that's really what confirmation bias is. It's a dive into knowledge or a pursuit of knowledge that isn't seeking to broaden one's horizons on truth. It's to reconfirm what one already believes. Absolutely. So the, the example that I like to use in medicine, there's a, there's a, uh, a coffee mug that pops up on the, on Google, um, or I've actually seen it in pictures of physicians' offices. It, it'll say something like, please do not confuse your Google search with my medical degree. Um, <laughs> you know, that, I don't own that, but it, there's some funniness to that too, because occasionally, very rarely, somebody will come in the office and say, you know what, doc, I know what I have. I have X, Y, or Z. I go, oh, okay. How did you get there? Well, confirmation bias. That, that's really where it is. Um, and, this is huge in the spiritual world and in, in the Christian environment because we do get challenged. Like there are situations, there, there'll be something that'll come up Sunday morning that goes against our, 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 our thought process, our, our doctrinal understanding. And we'll go back to the scriptures that we have learned and revalidate our positions on things. And I think Lee said it you know, best earlier. I really personally, me where I sit today, I really enjoy sitting down and hearing somebody just read the Bible and, and, and emphasize different words that I've heard emphasized. I mean, it just, it can change things. I had a youth minister at Auburn. He's passed away now, but he was probably one of the most uplifting individuals of my religious growth. It was Jim Brinkerhoff, super sweet man. And I can just distinctly remember him reading through portions of John and putting emphasis and in, in structure into different words and it blowing my mind. Like, I've never heard it that way. How have I missed this for the first, you know, 20 years of my life? Um, and so that's sort of where I sit now. Going back to the confirmation side of things, um, we want quick answers. Again, it's all about our, our mind trying to be as comfortable as possible. And so when we hit an uncomfortable road, we go to Google and um, search a quick answer. And, okay, that, that's, my, that's my response to that. Clearly, that's the correct answer. And we either store that away and go back to our very firm and certain faith, and we don't think about any more. But this thing becomes an abscess, you know, something, something that's purulent and infected, and just nags on us for the next year, however long. Um, and maybe it ruptures later on, and we're super sick, spiritually sick over it, or it's it, it doesn't allow us to grow. And so, confirmation bias: how to how to get rid of that being willing to be wrong, be, be willing to just open yourself up and listen to somebody's perspective. There's so much advantage to talking to other people outside of our belief system. Um, I firmly believe that you guys have thoughts on it. Questions. I, th I think that's spot on and being able to broaden my horizons and meet other people of different faith traditions, because it is, and I don't mean this disparagingly, and I really, I really hope that it's not coming across that way because I don't intend for it to. But, and I, I certainly hope that people don't misunderstand me and think that I'm disparaging my my heritage within the One Cup movement because there are people there that I love dearly, that I still view as faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. These are people that are devoted to Jesus, that love Jesus, and that have a desire above all else to serve Him and to do what they believe is right. And I respect that tremendously, but 
within the one cup movement, there's definitely that tenor of really being the only ones going to heaven. And in large part, it's because we got communion, right? You know, we got the plan Mm. of salvation, right? We got the five acts of worship, right? Especially communion. We nailed that one. And anyone that has deviated from that pattern, well, they're just a mad apostate. And whenever I met the folks that we would have called digressive brethren, and have seen that they're just as devoted to serving God and loving God as what we were, it, it really caused me to, to reevaluate that position and meeting people from, from other faith communities and, and other places who have maybe different views of, of theology than I do, but who still love Jesus tremendously. It really, I, I struggled with that for a very, very long time. And that, in large part, is what led me, in, in large part, to being willing to be wrong. But not just that, and I, we talked about this at length, just cosmology and the age of the earth and biology and all of these other things that science shows. It's like, well, you know, I can't look at this preponderance of evidence and really ignore it any longer. Mm-hmm. And I can't really reconcile it with the methodology I'm using to approach the scriptures so maybe the problem isn't with the science. Maybe it's in how I'm approaching the scriptures. Maybe it is in how I'm interpreting the science. I don't know. But whenever I was willing to allow myself to be wrong and I was able to release that certainty, that's when I was able to begin to grow and begin to change. But I mean, Dr. Allen, what you said is exactly right. You have to be willing to be wrong. Otherwise, you're not going to get away from it. Well, and you're. So, oh, well, I was just going to say, you're not able to allow yourself to be wrong if you believe that uh, your salvation is dependent upon being right. And, and, and that for a lot of people is where the rubber meets the road, because I have thought a lot about this. I've talked to psychologists uh, who have also made similar changes that, that I have, and we've had discussions and I've tried to understand, you know, why, why was I always so afraid of allowing someone else to be right. Why, why did I always have to be right and not just feel right or not just feel like I was right, but go around and telling other people they were wrong. What was that doing? And now we're able to have different guests on our program. We discuss all sorts of different topics. Sometimes we agree, sometimes we disagree, but we're always have to, you know, I never feel threatened. <laughs> Lee never feels threatened. Our guest, hopefully they never feel threatened. Even though we may not all agree, we're able to consider what the other has to say. And even if we never see things exactly alike on whatever topic is under consideration, we're okay with that. Well, I used to not be okay with that. And it just goes back to that idea that my salvation is so rooted in me having all of the right answers that I have to believe I have the right answers in order to believe that I'm saved. And that is that is one of the defining characteristics of, of works-based legalistic salvation. And you know, you were talking about the uh, the coffee mug and and uh, about the the Google search and don't don't mistake that for a degree. And uh, you know, I, I saw something the other day, which I'm usually not too too hip on memes, but I thought it was pretty funny. It's just a picture of two individuals talking. It says, "Let me interrupt your expertise with my confidence." Mm. And <laughs> you know, the the level of confidence that I used to have in my own beliefs. That was a trust in self is what that was. And that's what confirmation bias is all about. It certainly makes us feel good. It makes us feel like we're, I mean, who doesn't want to be right? Everybody wants to be right. And 
now that I realize my salvation is not dependent upon me getting everything right, it's about me loving God and loving others and having a pure heart that is seeking God, despite all of the things I, I might, I may or may not be, uh, be wrong over or on. And I know that there's a lot, I'm sure there's a lot, not on purpose, but I just know that I've been wrong before and I'm going to be wrong again. I'm trying not to be, but that's part of humanity and being a human. And so this confirmation bias, I think, is probably one of the biggest problems within Christendom. It, it really is because we all are trying to protect that. We're all trying to protect our our set of beliefs, and we want to make sure that uh, every the way we study confirms that. And in a conversation I was having with someone in the not not too long ago, not too distant past, um, I said, yeah, I really, I went to preaching school and I never learned much because I thought I had everything figured out. All I did was I learned different ways to teach the same thing instead of learning new things. <laughs> I was learning the, you know, just, okay, well, how can I present instrumental music is wrong 101 different ways? And because I knew it was wrong, quote unquote, and it's just a matter of now, what are some neat ways that I can go about proving that? And hmm. it really wasn't about trying to learn, trying to develop, because learning was scary. Learning, learning meant that I didn't know something. And what if the one thing I didn't know is the one thing I had to know to go to heaven? And, and questions like that just plagued me. So I had to just deceive myself into thinking I had all the answers. Well, Dr. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, brother. No, I was just going to say just to kind of summarize and and, the, and maybe to close up the thought. I When I went to Auburn University and left the, my little Christian high school, I, I carried with me two four-inch notebooks that was just stacked with all this apologetics information. And I was a science major, man. I was going to take these notebooks into my science classes and just hammer my biology <laughs> teachers that were teaching, you know, evolution and all this anti-God material. And uh, I was studying actually preparing for a class at the Christian student center at Auburn. And I had the current youth minister or the current campus minister, Micah Cobb walk up to me. He's a philosophy major. Gotta love those guys. And he said to me, Alan, it, you know, he, he could tell that the, I was just entrenched in this stuff. And, and I said to him, Micah, man, I can prove, I can prove God exists with this stuff. And he, he just very quietly said, Alan, if you can prove God, what's the purpose of faith? And then he turned around and walked away. Oh, and I, I have, that has stuck in my mind ever since. Now, don't get me wrong. I still love a little apologetics here and there, but that totally changed my perspective on things. And maybe it'll change somebody that's listening tonight. Man, that's heavy. That's really heavy. You just blew my mind. That's awesome. And I had a thought and that may tie into this idea as we get ready to wrap all this up. And I love this conversation and you know, Kevin, you know how gregarious he is. And if you listen to this podcast, you know, yeah, you know how much we both like to talk. And well, we're brother, about we to can... finish the introduction and really get into it here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll get into the weeds here in a minute, but I mean, we could, we could do this for hours, but I know our listeners don't have the patience for that. So we'll get ready to wrap up here in the next little bit. But when we were talking about confirmation bias, my mind kind of drifted back to the knowledge bias or education bias where we put others on a pedestal. You know, we put these, quote, faithful preachers on a pedestal or these elders who have all this knowledge and wisdom. And I'm not, and I'm or also ourselves. not speaking to that or ourselves. We put ourselves on that pedestal and, or because someone disagrees with us or whatever else, what is the interplay between that knowledge bias and educational bias and confirmation bias? How do those interact with one another? Because it seems mm -hmm. as though if I feel like I have it all figured out and I possess a tremendous amount of certainty, 
that whenever my worldview is challenged and my particular interpretive strategy is challenged, well, I'm going to double back down and engage in confirmation bias to further bolster my knowledge bias. Is that kind of a positive feedback loop as far as biases go? So Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson, he's the famous astrophysicist, uh, atheist, at least to my understanding. Um, he's got a fairly good quote, and I'll use it here, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says um, one of the biggest challenges of life is being intelligent or being knowledgeable enough to know something, be able to talk on it, but not knowledgeable enough to know when you're wrong. Um, and that sort of strikes me strikes me in an interesting way because I think that's a lot of us, right? We feel very, very comfortable. We know a little bit. We know a good amount of information, but we don't know when we get to our limit. What is our what is the the maximal amount of information that we know? And this has come up come up recently so many times in the last couple of years. Politi- I know you can't talk about politics and religion in the same conversation, but uh, people's political stance over the last couple of years, going through the last year, really going through the pandemic and how that's that people's opinions have shifted because of an extraneous knowledge base or an extraneous force. Um, There's, there's a lot of depth there, but yes, absolutely. Knowledge can play into confirmation. And I think where it really hits people is when they're at their limit of knowledge, then they have to go searching for the quick response, the the confirmation. And then that can reiterate and pull back into the, to strengthen their fairly weak and weak knowledge base. Is that a good way to describe it? Maybe not. I I think so. And it really, a a really good example of that, at least that I can think of is whenever I'm, you know, whenever I was learning more about biology and I was learning more about some of the biological and genetic evidences that exist that, that point towards evolution as, as the, what I call the process that God utilized to bring everything into, into existence as it is now you know, whenever I'm looking at that evidence and the evidence of an ancient universe, for me, that was, that was the limit of my knowledge. And whenever I went searching for those easy answers, those easy answers were not satisfying. They didn't answer the question for me. They just raised more questions or at the very least they caused frustration. And that led me ultimately to seek other answers. And I, it's real easy to get so scared that you really don't want to go into it. And that's how I felt for a while because I didn't want to freak my wife out. I didn't want her to think that her husband's becoming, you know, this godless reprobate who's not going to care anything about spiritual things at all anymore. And so for a while, I just kind of put it away, but it just kept nagging at me. Like you said, I really like the term you use. It became an abscess. And as that abscess festered and became septic, I had no other choice but to re-engage with it in a real and honest way, or I was going to spiritually die. And, and yeah, I, I don't want to, you know, make this a two hour podcast, but I, I would like to talk just a couple more minutes, at least Alan, just to kind of pick your brain on this sure. because the, I'm trying to think of the, the best way to word this. When I was in my most arrogant state is when I, I didn't know half as much as I know now. I mean, really, for the, the past 10 years, I have learned a lot, which has which has humbled me. I mean, it has humbled me to no end to to almost, you know, be suspicious of ever taking a firm conclusion on just about anything, because I'm like, well, I've been wrong so many times. What if I'm wrong again? And that used to bother me it really, over, even though the past couple of years that really bothered me. And that's really 
honest to goodness, when I started realizing, I think this is why Christianity calls for faith. Because knowledge can always be called into question. And as you pointed out, I think studying some apologetics type material is fine. I think looking at the historical Jesus and those types of things can be faith building to an extent. But at the end of the day, I I was having this conversation with a preacher friend of mine. And I said, you know, I, I, I no longer treat the existence of God and the resurrection of Jesus and the miracles and those types of things is something that I'm going about trying to get into arguments with people to prove. I said, those, those are secondary because if we approach Christianity through faith and, and we approach it more through the concepts of what we can experience, what we can, what is demonstrable, such as love and, and, and different questions, deep questions that all human beings ask and have in common Christianity begins to answer those types of questions. And, and those are the types of questions that I'm really looking for because I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I, the, I'm not ever going to be able to debate someone who, who has those types of credentials, who have studied that, because that's, you know, there may be individuals who feel like that's their calling, but I'm just not so sure that that's what faith is all about. And so I say all that simply to say, is there a sense in which those who may not be as educated either formally or informally, because, you know, I don't want people thinking that I'm implying you have to have a degree. Um, I don't even have a degree. I went to preaching school and that's it. And and I disagree with most of what I learned there anyway. So, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't have a degree, but I, I think that we can educate ourselves just as humans enough to humble ourselves. And someone asked me, well, Kevin, how long do you think you should study a topic? And because they said, we've noticed you've changed on a lot of things. How do you know you're right now? And I said, I don't. And they, they said, well, what? You know, you don't know you're right. I said, well, I think I'm right. But I thought I was right then, too. And they go, well, how, how much do you think you should study? I said, I think you should study until you're humbled to realize you have to trust in Jesus Christ. And that, Amen. to me, is faith. For some of us, that may not take as long. Some of us, it may take longer. Um, but it's just ironic to me that sometimes people who are very ignorant, tend to be the ones that fall into these biases, but also people who are very educated can, can fall into these biases. So you, as, whereas before, even before this conversation tonight, I kind of, I would guess you could say had a bias thinking that people who maybe were not as educated or studied on certain topics, they're just naturally going to fall into these categories. But it appears that anybody, doesn't Always. matter how educated you are, anybody can fall into any of these biases at any time. Right. And perhaps the more, maybe the higher level of education or the more confident, confident in air quotes that you become, the more bias applies. Um, I think that's a, a great, a great thought. So, so a faith in Jesus is simple. I mean, there's, there's obviously complexity there, right? But a belief, a belief in Christ is a heart thing. It's a, it's a mind thing. It, it, it's a, a simple step forward that the steps afterwards are very, very hard and challenging, right? And so no matter what your intellect is, no matter what your IQ is, the studying process for you may be different. I don't, you know, I sort of got the perception going through the, my Bible high school and, and early college that I, there was a requirement at the gates of heaven to be able to recite the New Testament. Do you guys ever have that you know, concept, yeah. right? Yeah, kind oh, of. Yeah. Yes. Oh but yeah. That's how, that's why you study, you study to memorize. Mm-hmm. And, but that none of those bits and pieces, it, I learned a ton in that process. 
but that that was not the faith developer for me. It was this guy walking up to me in the study room at the Christian Student Center that, you know, took apart what I thought was the solid rock of my faith, the apologetics, <laughs> and saying, dude, if you if you can prove God, what's the point of faith? Right? Those it, just those little things that take you and open your mind and open your heart. And we do that to each other. That's that is I, I think the purpose of the podcast tonight is to rub on each other a little bit and open each other up. And maybe your listeners as they're thinking about the things that have held them back or they have just fixated on, maybe they can think a little differently. Just open, open your mind some. Absolutely. Well, as we get ready to bring this to a close and wrap up this, this conversation, I really don't want to end it. I'd like to keep it going because I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I'm having a really good time talking to you. Yeah, Kevin, you were right. I like Alan. He's awesome. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, so- I mean, I'm excited because you guys, uh, I love both of you guys, and I couldn't wait to introduce y'all. It's good times. Uh, Doc, do you have anything else that you'd like to add or any comments that you feel are, are necessary, That any final points that you would want to get across to our audience before we wrap this up? Yeah, so I would encourage people that are listening to to be aware of your feelings. Um, be aware of your when you're becoming uncomfortable with a topic, and don't bottle that stuff up and push it away. Open it, put it on a platter, and talk with somebody. Talk with somebody that's perhaps more comfortable with it than you are. Allow yourself to be challenged. Don't get into the position where you feel like you have to be right all the time. It's a setup for heartache. It's a setup for falling out of the church and falling away from God, um, be willing to open yourself up. Think about that emotional state. Um, and if you get in a scenario where you're having to make quick decisions and, or talk to somebody that's uncomfortable, think about your biases and how that can direct the conversation. I mean, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that the evil one uses these against us in conversations, can absolutely destroy our evangel- evangelical process by how we the words we say and and what we do. So well, I'm and super I, and, thankful. Oh, go ahead. Kevin. Well, no, I was just going to, going to brag on you one more time, man, just for the audience to know how this is something that, that you are well aware of. We were having a conversation and I don't think you're going to mind me saying this. I hope you don't. We can edit Uh-oh. it if you do. Um, but uh, <laughs> we were having a conversation because uh, my mom and I, we were talking and she was just you know, as always, just bragging about you. Oh, Alan's great. Oh, doc, Dr. Baggett, Dr. She, you know, Dr. Baggett is wonderful. Dr. Baggett's the best mm-hmm. doctor I ever had. And so she, she always wants me to tell you that she says, let him, let, let Dr. Baggett know how great he is. Let him know he's wonderful. So I, I, I don't know, this has been a few months ago. I think it was the last time she was in the ER and, um, you, uh, you, you told me, you said, well, I appreciate that and tell her I appreciate that. But, you know, I think she probably has a bit of bias too, because she already likes me. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> and uh, so you said, you, I don't know if you remember telling me that or not, but you said, I, I think that, you know, I, she's already going to think that I'm going to do a good job regardless because she already likes me. And I thought that was interesting that, you know, that you noted that because, because we do, I mean, we have expectations. Once we like something or somebody, we tend to give them the benefit of the doubt. We tend to, to uh, give them more grace, more patience. I'm sure even if something would have gone wrong, mom would have said, oh, well, you know, that was my fault. Or, you know, they, they would have been excused because why? Well, you're great. You're wonderful. Right. And so right, right. it's and, and, and I think about I, I think about the Bible and how one of the characteristics of love is that it believes all things. And when you break down that 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 the, the Greek there, it literally means uh, you believe the best in people. That That's really ultimately what it means. 
And if we were to believe the best in everybody, think about how much of a better place the world would be. If, if Christians truly live that out, and if every time you know, someone got in our way or, or every, you know, in, in traffic, instead of thinking that they just don't know how to drive, why, why don't we not give them the benefit of the doubt? And I heard someone one, one time give a speech on this about the difference in how their life changed when they started giving everyone the benefit of the doubt. And so if they go to a restaurant and the server's horrible, they tell themselves a story about the server. They said, well, the server just lost their their spouse or the, the, the server just lost their parent. And they're just having a really tough time right now. And that's why they're not doing a great job. And people are like, well, you're making that up. Sure, you may be making that up, but you're going to be making up something else for why they're not doing a good job. So it might as well be something, a valid reason to make you feel better about that person and give them the benefit of the doubt. And nine times out of 10, that person does have a reason for why they are the way they are. And, uh, and, and usually we can't understand it because we haven't gone through that same experience. So, you know, just being able to give everyone the, the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, if, if, if we could all be biased in that way, <laughs> you know, right. I, I think that that would actually be a good thing. I think, I think in that mm-hmm. sense, if we could all believe the best in people and, and love believes the best, love believes all things, if, if we could kind of start with that bias and you know what, I'm going to believe the best in this person. And I think things would would go a lot better in conversation and in just everyday life with people. Meeting people where they are. It's, it's yeah. key. It's critical for good conversation. Absolutely. Well, Doc, thank you so much once again for taking time out of your schedule to join us to have this conversation. We definitely want to have you back on. This has been a real thank treat. You. It's been a real joy. So thank you. We appreciate it. And we appreciate you sharing your expertise on this subject. And we hope that it's been beneficial to our listeners. And to our listeners, we want to thank all of you once again. We've heard from quite a few of you this week, and we appreciate it. We appreciate your feedback. We appreciate you sharing with us how the podcast has been beneficial to you, how it has helped you, and how it's helped to change your life for the better, and how it's helped affect your walk with Jesus. That's why we're doing it, is for people like you who are going through the things that Kevin and I and so many others have gone through. You're not alone. You're a part of a community. You're a part of the family of God. You're a child of God and God loves you. So we want to thank you all for listening and for sharing this podcast with others. We never want to close it out without begging and pleading for you to give us that five-star review on iTunes. Uh, Share this podcast with your friends and neighbors. Share it on Facebook. If you have questions, if you have concerns, if you have needs, or if you just want prayer, drop us a line. We have our email address in the show notes. You can reach out to Kevin or I on Facebook. We won't always get back with you really quickly, but we try to make it a point to get back with everybody. So thank you all once again, and we bid you all a good night.